0: Dear listener, and welcome to the Black Box Theater podcast. What you're about to hear is a version of Black Box Theater publication 4, a publication we launched during Ushlu International Theater Festival 2020 in March. By presenting a total of eight voices discussing different topics in various formats, we want to give you the possibility to explore contents related to the artistic program presented during the festival. In our previous publication, we have aimed for multifaceted topics. This one, on the other hand, has more of a common thread. Here, all of the texts provide new versions and readings of our common history. They give invisibilized stories and narratives a voice. This publication is a contribution to rewrite parts of the story and to welcome other voices into storytelling. Black Box Theater Publication 4 presents five different texts. The texts are written by performing artists, authors, visual and sound artists, and they're all offering a variety of perspectives related to the artistic program of Ushlu Internationale Theater Festival 2020. We are very happy to share these contributions with you. And now, even as a podcast, are you ready to give them a listen? Welcome to the Black Box Theater podcast. This very first reading of our podcast, you will hear Mother with Her Footprints by Jonas Eika. Jonas Eika is a Danish author born in Aarhus in 1991. Eika made his literary debut with the novel Lagre Huse Marie, Warehouse House Marie, in 2015. In 2018, he followed up with Efter Solen, After the Sun, for which he received the Nordic Council Literature Prize. In this podcast, however, Jonas Eika will read a new essay, commissioned especially for Black Books Theater Publication 4. In this essay entitled "Muddy with her footprints, Jonas Aika is investigating how he, from his position in history today, can read, understand, and rewrite the history of the early Beguins the early Beguins were a group of religious women who sought to live outside the patriarchy, society and the church. Mother with her footprints was originally written in Danish and translated into English by Sherilyn Helberg. In this podcast, you will be listening to the English version of the text, read by the author himself. Enjoy!
1: muddy with her footprints, on rewriting the early Begin history. Marie de Oignier was married at 14 and convinced her husband to be celibate. Together they left their home in Nivelle, south of Brussels, to take care of lepers in a hospital in Willembro. Word of her reached many women and they followed her. And even more hadn't heard, but around the same time were taken by a similar spirit, a desire to live in a new and ancient way, poor and devoted like the apostles, but still connected to the world. It was the first time in Christian Europe that large groups of women began to live outside of both marriage and the cloister, belonging to neither a divine nor earthly husband, Soon they were living in communities small and large in Belgium, Holland and Flanders, and then in France and Germany too. They settled on the outskirts of cities and in the fields near hospitals and churches, caring for the sick, working as teachers, weavers and blacksmiths, tending to the land and God and each other. The Begins, the movement was later called, and I came to them through a line of female mystics, Simon Weil, Mechthild of Magdeburg, Marguerite Pourette, Hattevich of Brabant, women who all, in their understanding of the soul's path to God, imagined the self as radically open, something that could give way to an external desire. The believer approaches God not by an act of will, but rather by emptying herself of the I, that force which longs to assert itself, to exercise its own will and arrange the world in its image. And in the same movement she becomes so full with God that she cannot be distinguished from him. I write him because this is the pronoun they use for God. And even though submitting one's will to a male God may not seem a particularly feminist strategy, I would argue that there is something subversive about the medieval female mystics' notion of emptying the self, or decreation, as Simone Weil put it many years later, to make something created pass into the uncreated. It had the potential to take the believing woman where the patriarchal order couldn't reach her, and to rework the image on which the power of the church rested that humans were sinful by nature and required the church to keep them in check. The mystics, however, saw the human open to influence and desire that could take them out of themselves and change them beyond recognition so that they might eventually become God with God, as Hattevich put it. I have long been drawn to this idea of the human self, both as an anarchist alternative to the ontology of the modern nation-state, in which the political subject is a limited and coherent entity with representable interests, and also because it aligns much better with my own experience of what makes love possible. In close friendships, romantic relationships and political engagements, I am sometimes taken outside of myself, emptied and taken hold of, even if only briefly. Part of myself recedes or dissolves and makes room for something that might be called love to enter. For me, all love and desire is bound to this feeling of not being whole, of being traversed by and subject to forces external to myself. It's also a feeling of not being a man, at least in binary patriarchal terms, where the male subject is seen as sovereign, impenetrable, never the object of something or someone else. But I've also wondered whether my attraction to this idea of emptying or destroying the self has to do with the fact that I, as a cis man, have been socialized to take up space and exercise my will in most spaces. Is there some element of catharsis in my experience and idea of decreation? Or am I, in my idealization of it, overlooking the different meanings and implications it might have if one, like a woman during the Middle Ages, doesn't have any kind of autonomy? My encounter with the Beguines is also an encounter with these questions. How can I, as a man today, connect with a religious woman's movement from the 13th century? And also, how might a political community informed by the radical notion of decreation look? The Beguines were, by all accounts, trying to figure out exactly this. This essay is an attempt to reach them across the historical and experiential distance that separates me from them, and to wrest their history out of the hands of the patriarchy that has written it in its own image. There are only few historical records of the early begins. These consist primarily of eleven hagiographies, biographical accounts of the lives of individual women written with the intention of having them canonized. This creates a few problems for someone trying to understand them. First, because life in the loosely organized, more or less autonomous begin communities often appears as a parenthesis a stop on the road to a more conventional monastic life. Second, because these accounts are written by priests, monks and bishops, which is to say men, who lived in a patriarchal society that divided the world into body and spirit, feeling and rationality, and declared woman the incarnation of the basis of these dualisms. Locating the actual person in a hagiography is a matter of searching for cracks in the male gaze, sifting through layer after layer of paternalism, morality and sublimated male desire. But then occasionally, underneath the most far-fetched interpretations and justifications, you can make out one of her real actions, a little bit of the life she tried to live. This is also the case with Marie de Eugnier. The majority of her vita, her life, as this kind of hagiography is so despotically entitled, revolves around her piety, repentance and humility, how she, even as a child, indeed, quote, almost from the womb, unquote, lived for God, renouncing old-worldly things. But once in a while there are signs of something else, something excessive, in paragraph seventeen, her confessor and hagiographer, Jacques de Vitry, recounts a Monday Thursday mass, during which she cried so loud at Jesus' suffering that the priest asked her to get a hold of herself and pray in silence. Since she did not feel capable of that, she left the church and prayed to God to let the priest understand that no one had the power to restrain such tears. Back in the church, in the middle of the mass, the priest was overcome by tears. He sobbed and stuttered, almost choking. And then Marie cried day and night. Her tears streamed so heavy and unceasing, quote, that the ground in the church became muddy with her footprints, unquote. Although expressions of compassion by women were encouraged and celebrated as a sign of inner piety, a kind of emotional stigmata, a woman's disruption of a masculine domain such as the church was strong evidence of heresy. The fact that Sharks includes this episode nevertheless, followed by a moralizing miracle, suggests that it really happened. It appears, moreover, to be a variation on a theme that runs through the vita often requiring justifications on his part, that Marie was too much, too much of what she was supposed to be. She gave herself too extravagantly to the asceticism encouraged by the church. Her fasts were spontaneous, inspired by so-called visitations from one of her favorite saints and could last up to eleven days. Sometimes, after receiving communion, she would remain in her bed in silence, not eating for weeks at a time. At other points in the hagiography, Schach praises her for maintaining a high work ethic on a minimal diet and for her ability to work and pray at once. But here, fasting makes her useless. She becomes inaccessible to the priests and to the pilgrims and lay people who come to see her. And if she knows they are coming, she might run into the forest to hide. Her acts of self-harm, her, quote, humiliations of the flesh, unquote, were also too much. One day she sliced off a large piece of her own flesh and buried it in the ground. Earlier, when she had just been married, she would spend her brief nights of sleep on wooden planks with a coarse rope bound tightly around her. This is one of the few places in the Vita where Jacques makes clear to his readers, which included not only the Vatican but also religious women and lay people, that Marie's practice was to be admired but not imitated. Her acts of self-harm were a sign of her piety but also an excess not to be immolated. Especially when confronted with the extreme asceticism and self mutilation of this period's religious woman, it's like an abyss opens in front of me, a chasm of history and gender. I am rarely touched without giving some form of consent. I am not seen as others' property with few momentary exceptions, at certain parties, certain gay bars, a sudden hand in my pants, a tongue in my mouth, a command. I have always, as a cis man, had a foundational autonomy. I have never felt that I didn't have power over my own body in the way that women do today when they are victims of assault, or women in the Middle Ages who were forced to marry, sent to a convent, or suspected of heresy. Their bodies always potentially belonged to someone else, and yet they were all that they had. This is essential to understanding their acts of self-harm, their long fasts and vigils, their ecstatic visions. That the body was the only material they had to work with. And if they didn't take it into their own hands, then men most likely would. As a woman, Marie was pure body and sinful in the eyes of the Church, at the mercy of her own needs and desires. In many ways, she needed to overcome her body to be seen as pious and to be able to live a life outside both the cloister and reproductive marriage. With this in mind, it can be tempting to interpret her self harm as either a kind of internalized misogyny or as a planned performance. Something that would convince Jacques and the other clergy members of her holiness. But both of these readings seem insufficient. They suggest a form of female spirituality that was at most an imprint, a photo negative, of the patriarchy that surrounded it. There is, moreover, Nothing in the historical records to suggest that the violently ascetic and at times self mutilating religiosity of these women was strategic. In fact, the few surviving texts written by the 13th century Begin's bear witness to an intense attempt to become one with God through a kind of self directed violence. In The Mirror of Simple Souls, a kind of manual to achieve mystical union, Marguerite Porret describes the seven stages that the soul must pass through to overcome original sin and become one with God. In the first stage, the soul is touched by grace and filled with the desire to exercise God's will. But in order to do so, it must detach from its own will, it must dismantle or empty the self, a process that becomes physical and violent in the third stage. One must crush oneself, writes Porette, hacking and hewing away at oneself to widen the place in which love will want to be. Self-harm, taken literally or figuratively, is in fact a necessary part of inner transformation. Motivated by grace, it creates an opening in the self for something else, namely love, to enter and take shape. It vacates this space for a new subjectivity... A self neither autonomous nor self-contained, but rather open to greater forces. Self-annihilation is not, first and foremost, a strategy, a means of worldly liberation. The relationship between the two is different. To destroy the self, one must have a certain level of autonomy, a self to destroy, as the French mystic and philosopher Simon Weil wrote more than six hundred years after Marguerite Poet, we possess nothing in the world, a mere chance can strip us of everything, except the power to say I that is what we have to give to God, in other words to destroy. In medieval Europe, however, women did not have the power to say I at least not in a way that bore weight against their brothers, husbands or the church. If a woman refused to be married, it was to save herself for a male god, her heavenly bridegroom. She was either to remain in the home, subject to the authority of a father or husband, or be subject to the church on the monastic rule which demanded that nuns must be completely isolated from the world. Marie de Oignier began to harm herself, quote, because she clearly did not have power over her own body, unquote. That's how Jacques de Vitry puts it, who probably meant that she couldn't control her desire, but his words suggest something else, perhaps something more true, that her body belonged to a man. She had just been married, but hadn't yet convinced her husband to be celibate. Her self-subjugation might therefore be seen as a way of reclaiming her right to her body, a subjugation of herself for herself. Is this also the case of self-harm in general? Might it also be a way of simultaneously destroying and claiming power over oneself? That is, in any case, how I have experienced it, from both the inside and outside, when I've been so full of grief or shame that I didn't know what else to do, or when I've been close to someone who hurt themselves. An enclosed, self-sufficient activity, a loop that shuts out everything else. In Marie's case, the men to whom she was beholden, whose authority she had to circumvent, not to be seen as a heretic or completely without protection. First her husband, and then later Jacques and the other priests of Oignier, and then all the pilgrims and wealthy men who came to claim something from her, a council, a prayer, an exorcism, a thought. The ascetic and self-mutilating religiosity that occasionally shines through in the hagiographies of Marie and the other ten women constituted a threat to the patriarchy because it simultaneously challenged masculine authority and made the religious woman inaccessible to men, taking both the form of attack self-generated stigmata, the muddy footprints on the church floor, and withdrawal into the forest, into the commune, into the long, silent fasts that rendered these women useless. And beneath it all, an inner transformation was taking place, a becoming nothing that is also a becoming God, in so far as God might fill the space that the self has left behind. In Marguerite porrette's words, in the sixth stage, This soul thus pure and illumined sees neither God nor herself, but God sees himself of himself in her for her without her. But when the soul lives within a woman who herself lives within a patriarchal system as dominant and pervasive as it was in thirteenth century Europe, self annihilation does not necessarily lead to liberation, but can also take the form of self effacement. Quote Because she could not endure the company of the men whose devotion frequently impelled them to visit her, writes Jacques, Marie left the hospital in Willembro in 1207 and travelled to Oignier, where she lived as a hermit in close contact with a local Augustinian cloister. This was likely to find peace and quiet, not constantly to have to negotiate her possession with the church but it was also a capitulation, a preparation for death. On her arrival, Marie already predicted she would die in Orgniere and told Jacques exactly where in the church her body should be buried. Over the following years, she prayed, held vigils and fasted in increasingly manic rhythms until she was no longer capable of doing much else. In the last ten chapters of the Vita, Schack describes how she embraces her self-prophesized death, how she calls on it, makes it arrive. Many days of uninterrupted hymns, prayers and half-visionary, half-rambling biblical interpretations and then silence and unbroken fasting. Lying in the bed that had been placed in the middle of the church. And then, under the open sky, she ate nothing for fifty-three days, languished, lost consciousness, and breathed her last breath. <clears throat> Marie disappears here. First, she is veiled by Jacques's gaze, which makes her protracted death appear a celebratory liberation from her flesh, her frail limbs relics, her last day a wedding day. And then she becomes inaccessible to me as she was to those around her. She plunges into herself, becomes mute. There is a kind of suffering here I don't understand. It might seem obvious to see her death as a last act of resistance or a last subjection, but I don't feel capable of interpreting it. I know that aversion to food, the desire not to consume anything, But for me it lasts a few days at most and is indistinguishable from a desire to be less, less of a man. The aversion to inhabiting a gender always looking to satisfy its desire to assimilate the world in its image. A key aspect of the male gaze of the hagiographies. The complete failure to grasp the one turned away. The tendency to take the one turned away, and especially the woman, as an invitation. Even when she is beside herself or unconscious, even when she is dead, she offers meaning. And still, this sense that my attempt to empty myself comes from a position of excess and autonomy, that my desire to destroy my enclosed and willful self is also a form of resisting the position I've been gendered to occupy. But is it also possible that the autonomous and impenetrable subject who occupies such a central place in the misogynistic and anthropocentric culture of the West is in reality a subject created in the image of a man and in that sense not worth striving for? That thought also makes it necessary to insist that the self-destructive spirituality practiced by Marie and her contemporaries possibly constituted a project of liberation, which didn't need to end in self-effacement and might have left to new ways of life. Before she moved to Oignier to begin her slow process of dying, Marie lived near the hospital in Willembro for 15 years, surrounded by a group of trusted female companions. Jacques writes little about this period of her life, which makes me imagine things. Their lives without men, how they took care of each other and created the necessary structures for their ascetic practice, their ecstasies and visions. How they read and wrote and taught each other, working to increase their strength, tending the land, taking care of the animals, building houses, trying to become self-sufficient so that they could also materially divest from the patriarchy. It was around this time between 1190 and 1225 that the Begin movement started and had its first informal phase. Marie de was previously thought to be a kind of founder, but most historians today agree that the movement started spontaneously and didn't have any unifying figure. Small communities of women looking for something similar, often leaving parents, husbands and children behind to find it sprang up in multiple places in the Low Countries within a short period of time. They had no established rule or central order. They organized themselves in small, non-hierarchical communes that shared their land and traded freely, a kind of anarcho-communism. Most of them worked, either with textiles or the land, or as nurses and teachers, so that they could support the withdrawn life of contemplation that seems to have been so important to them while still playing an active and visible role in social life. They became a kind of threshold figure, capable of crossing the border between the religious and worldly spheres over the course of a life or a day, begin and celibate for a period of time and then married, or vice versa, wandering from their houses, which often lay on the city outskirts, to the church and back again, working in town or the fields during the day to retreat into prayer, reading and meditation at night. Their border crossing quickly became a threat to those in power. Around the year 1230, local and regional lords, in collaboration with the church and a number of religious orders, began to gather the beguines in large, enclosed architectural complexes, known as court beguinages, which consisted of apartments and workshops set around a centrally located church. The complexes were a kind of town within a town. They could accommodate up to 1,500 people and they were legitimated by language that strongly recalls that used by contemporary nation states to legitimize discrimination increase police force and states of emergency they were a necessary protection against the threat in a number of foundational charters of the 13th century court beguinages, both ecclesiastical and worldly authorities claim that they intend to protect the local beguines from the danger of sexual assault associated with wandering through market squares and inns on their way to church and back home. It makes me wonder whether the kinship between the patriarchy and the modern states is exactly that, Both legitimize their existence by claiming to protect against the threat that they are responsible for creating. The state uses a state of emergency, the patriarchy the threat of sexual violence. And to give this threat the appearance of a necessary condition, of a law of nature, both the state and the patriarchy rely on an image of humans, and especially women, as inherently sinful. Christianity delivers it in the form of original sin, a burden that the women of the Middle Ages bore the greatest weight of. In the story of the fall they became the cause of sin, and in medieval, neoplatonic images of the world as pure body and desire, the source of all kinds of sins, even when they were victims of sexual assault. The blame, which to this day is often placed on victims of sexual assault, can accurately be called medieval. In reality, the patriarchy's problem with the Beguines was not that they were women wandering freely about town, but that they no longer could be identified as such. As the Franciscan theologian Gilbert de Tonay wrote in a letter to the Pope, there are among us women whom we have no idea what to call, ordinary women or nuns, because they live neither in the world nor out of it. In their very way of life, the Beguines broke with the categories that the patriarch used to classify a woman's life worldly, meaning in the world, under the authority of a father or husband, or religious, meaning outside of the world, under the authority of God by the laws of the cloister. A Beguine life was neither, neither nor. It wasn't classifiable. Sidestepping the worldly slash religious binary, the Beguines were able, for a time, to escape the category of woman as defined by the patriarchy, and took on the power to define themselves, The historical sources don't say much about how, only that there was, as there is beyond any binary, a proliferation of possibilities, of ways of life, of collective small and large, of various handcrafts saints to pray to, male and female too, the Virgin Mary as bride, Jesus as mother, nursing with his open wound, drawn closer and closer to his breast, I think it was the possibility of the Beguine's autonomy, glimpses of power to define themselves or not, that the patriarchy couldn't handle. That was why they were gathered in these complexes. Their daily routes delineated by the roads and paths that ran through them, always along a wall or in the shape of a cross. Unlike nuns, they were allowed to leave the complex during the day but now that all their activities were gathered in one place, they had little reason to do so. Official rules were enforced, a prioress was appointed, and a scriptural father assigned to be their confessor. That was a way to manage them, to monitor them for orthodoxy. Otherwise, the church couldn't know what they were doing in their houses at night what they were teaching each other and their students, which new forms of theology they were making, which forms of knowledge they shared and how. When a form of life collapses existing identity categories, when bodies no longer correspond to their labels, a space opens in which actions, thoughts and practices cannot be controlled, in which even bodies themselves cannot be identified. Here, by way of conclusion, an attempt to let the begin speak. <clears throat> begin Most people use the word about religious woman not bound to a cloister. Others to describe our grey-brown clothes, neither bleached nor dyed. But some have told me that it comes from Albigensis or Albi, the lecherous town in southern France where there was the outbreak of heresy. And others that it refers to one who stutters, mumbles, speaks unclearly, as if falling into their prayers, a prayer so private it cannot be heard. I think that the latter must be the right, because the learned always suspect us of our language. That we read the scriptures unlearned, and misinterpret them, that we say one thing and mumble another once we were depicted with bulging amber eyes and forked tons, not here but in the house of our sisters on the other side of the river, and above the painting there stood Beguine. And yet some of us has begun to take the name, those who have purchased property, they call their residences Beguinages, and have appointed a magistra, a prioress, someone in charge, approved by a priest or a prior. I know that Clarice occasionally acts the role of leader here, but that was never the intention. We meant to live together in our collective renunciation of power. Of what follows from property and the ability to say I, to exercise one own's will, to decide for others. I thought that the latter would be gone with the former. I understand that the knowledge of the suspicions that surround us make Clarice afraid and make her cherish what the others say we are. But are we even beguines? Are we not mere women living together in poverty from our own harvest and the work of our hands? Are we not mere farmers, doctors, teachers, weavers and blacksmiths? Did we not labour on our ancestral land? Did we not stand in the field, feel the grain-brown expanse, pulling ourselves out of ourselves and know we could be so full of God that nothing else would be left? And did we not take to the cities to find each other, or to find support in chastity when a farmer bought the land and thought we should be part of the purchase? Or were we already in the city, finding each other through the tenderness of our hands, Do we not observe the canonical hours, morning, afternoon, and evening, and make the time between an unbroken prayer? And do we not forget them if Jesus' wounds draws us in, if he asks us to drink or stick a finger inside? Do we not think of him if it is him we love the most, or of the Virgin if it is she Does she not pass us her child, as a mother gives her son to a nurse, and do we not receive him and kiss his face as if we were eating a piece of fruit? And do we not let ourselves be married to her, if that is what she wants of us? Do we not know our desire, and do we not follow the path that will make it flourish until it too exceeds us? Is it not so? Are we not many?
0: You have been listening to the first episode of Black Box Theater podcast featuring "Mother with her footprints a text read and written by Jonas Aika. Black Box Theater podcast is created by Elin Grinaker Agne Ribe Martin Langley Kristoffer Busch Oda Tømte and me, Ida Holtilid Black Box Theater is supported by the Norwegian Ministry of Culture and the City of Oslo Stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast series.